Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNH Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology, and neuroscience in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVNH Consulting, North America. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. I'm very excited to be here and to be introducing our guest, Professor Robert Plowman. Robert Plowman is MRC Research Professor in Behavioral Genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience, King's College, London. He previously held positions at the University of Colorado Boulder and Pennsylvania State University. He was elected a Fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences and of the British Academy for his twin studies and his groundbreaking work in behavioral genetics. In 1995, Professor Plowman began the Twins Early Development Study, or TEDS, which has followed 10,000 pairs of UK twins from infancy through early adulthood and has been continuously funded for 25 years as a program grant from the Medical Research Council. Professor Plowman has been elected the youngest president of the International Behavior Genetics Association and has received lifetime research achievement awards from the major associations related to his field. He has published more than 800 papers and is the author of the best-selling textbook in the field, as well as a dozen other books. His most recent book is Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Robert, welcome to the Be Good podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. So, uh, Robert, let's uh, start. Thank you again for joining us uh, today for this episode of Be Good. Uh, Robert, I think you earned a PhD in psychology from the University of Texas at uh, Austin. Can you tell us about how you uh, came to be interested in behavioral genetics? Yeah, well, it's uh, there's a, a long version, but I'll try to give you the short version of this. It's it's really relevant. I think if you ask, you know, people our age, you ask them about why they're doing what they're doing, and it's often kind of chance events in a way, you know, sliding door moments. And that was the case for me. I grew up in inner city Chicago in a family without any books, and none of my uh, dozens of cousins went to university. But I went to university. Uh, I, in school, I did well. I got scholarships and I went to university and I was in psychology as an undergraduate. And then I had an advisor who said, do you ever consider graduate school? And I honestly didn't even know what that was. But being a poor inner city kid, they told me, well, you could get paid to go there. You know, they'd you know, get a fellowship and all that. And I did. And that was the University of Texas at Austin. So I went there in psychology just because, you know, it's a fairly good university, and I, I didn't know much better anyway. And But it turns out that in, in the U.S., they used to have a core curriculum for Ph.D. students. And you'd have to take courses all across psychology from perception, cognition, clinical, personality. And at Texas, unlike any other university in the world at that time, this is the 1970s, they had one of those courses in behavioral genetics. 
they had most of the behavioral geneticists in the world there, all eight of them. And uh, what, what I don't understand is I was floored by that course. I heard about genetics. I had never heard about it before in psychology. And I just thought it was astounding. But then there were 39 other students, other graduate students in the class with me, and not one of them became interested in behavioral genetics. And I really don't know what that's about, but that was what um, set me off. I knew right away that's what I wanted to do. And it's wonderful if you find something like that, you know? It's the best thing in life if you can find something you really love to do. Yeah, and you do it uh, all along your life. It's really a, a gift. Yeah, I think you can do things you know, that we could have probably done a lot of different things, probably. But it's just so nice when, you know, everything's in a line like that. And you, and you just say, wow, that's what I want to do, whether I get paid for it or not. And I was lucky, too. It was a great time to be there. It was just the beginning of the field in psychology. Psychology in the 70s was very resistant to the notion of genetics. So I, I kind of grew up with the field. And it's been wonderful to see. It's why I cannot retire because things are going so well now, you know, why would you get off the train now, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, Robert, could you share with us any mentors that had a particularly uh, strong influence on you? Do you have any researcher or other people or research who have played an influential role in your professional career? It, it sounds very immodest to say no. I mean, I had a, a lot of people I admire, a lot of uh, people I read who I've, I've enjoyed. I had great colleagues, um, but there wasn't like one mentor. And I know many of the people you interview will say, well, there, there's this one person who set me up. But it was really lots of different people. They were all good colleagues. But um, just to be honest, I have to say no. <laughs> So, Robert, your recent book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, was just published at the end of last year. And before we discuss the content of it, could you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? How did the idea for this book come to you? Yeah, well, as I said, uh, in the 70s in the United States, probably in Europe too, um, it was really almost dangerous to talk about genetics. You know, we're still coming off of Nazi Germany, And in the U.S., especially when anyone can be president, supposedly, you know, the idea that um, genetics could uh, uh, be responsible for some of the differences between people was just really anathema. And so for a long time, I just kept my head down. I did the research. I tried to I was a bit chicken in a way. I kept my head below the parapet, you know, because I was a young professor and I you just wanted to get the research done. And I hoped that the behavioral sciences would remain empirical. They remain sciences. And in the, in the end, you know that data will win. And I think that's what's happened. You know, I could have gotten into all sorts of fights with people. It wouldn't do any good. I think you just get their backs up and it's almost counterproductive sometimes. And so it's, I'm really pleased to see though that the field has come around to genetics. However, 30 years ago, I was asked to write this book. And I was asked to write by this famous um, New York uh, publisher, you probably, agent, you probably know him, Brockman. Um, he's sort of notorious in a way. His motto is, if you ever get a royalty, he hasn't done his job. You're supposed to get such a big advance, you can't possibly sell that many books. And uh, 
and he so he said you know this feels really hot now you know this is like in the 80s and you know i said just not right for me to do this now and i'm glad i didn't because i could have written much of the first half of the book in the 80s and early 90s but that was before the DNA revolution even was in anybody's mind. Nobody even thought it was possible. And so now um, it, it, that it's not only possible, it's here. And so it was a particularly good moment to write it. And also at this stage in my career, I don't care. You know, I've decided I'm just gonna stop being so cautious. I'm just gonna tell it like I think it is and not worry about the consequences. And um, quite, I, my friends thought it was a professional suicide note, even, even when I wrote it, you know, they thought people are going to be very upset about this, but they really weren't. I mean, I was amazed at how good the response was, especially from the public, but also from psychology. But there are some areas of the behavioral sciences that, you know, are still very, uh, there's a great deal of antipathy towards genetics, especially education, for example. And I've been surprised by some areas like economics. They go gangbusters for genetics now. And uh, even sociology, you know, or anthropology, these are very divided areas. You know, there are some people who are probably very anti-genetic, but there are many people in even sociology um, who are quite positive and interested in genetics. So I've been really, um, I was glad I didn't write it 30 years ago, and I'm very glad to have written it now. And um, uh, it's just been a great experience, and it keeps going on with interviews like this. Fantastic. So there are a number of really fascinating insights into your book, which we'll get into. But as a headline, what is the main learning that you want our audience to remember after our conversation about this book? Well, we were talking about the title and the book just came out in France and in France it's called The Invisible Architect, which is a very interesting title. But the US title, um, I, I said no way when my publisher Penguin suggested it. It was called Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And I thought, oh man, that is gonna cause so much grief because it sounds deterministic and it, yeah, it, there's lots of reasons why it's a bad title. There are some people who explicitly say DNA is not a blueprint, but um, I can talk about those issues. Uh, but um, anyway, it, it, is, it does convey properly interpreted what I'm trying to say, that DNA is the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals. The environment's important, but the environment doesn't work the way we thought it worked from Freud onward, which was really the family and particularly the mother. So if, if kids become, have psychopathology, you blame that on the mother. You know, it's a, a lot of mother blaming stuff. I mean, you know, it's really quite amazing that up, uh, up until genetics came along, if, if your kid, you, you know, if your child becomes schizophrenic and you have a 1% chance of your children being schizophrenic, um, you, you would have been told, and the psychology books at the time when I was in graduate school in the 70s, they actually said, that schizophrenia is caused by what your mother does to you in the first few years of life. And how wicked is that? Because here they're now in their late teens or early 20s. You can't do anything about the first three years of life. And the thing is, it's totally wrong. There's just no evidence that that is the case. And schizophrenia is one of the more heritable 
areas of psychosis, of, of psychopathology. So, um, it, uh, so, so the, 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 the nutshell, it's that uh, of the book, it is in the title that DNA is the major systematic force that makes us who we are as individuals. The environment's important, but it doesn't work the way we thought it worked. And we can go into that later. But I, I do want to emphasize the environment's important, but it just doesn't work in terms of um, systematic monolithic influences of the family environment. Uh, Robert, before going deeply into your fantastic and often surprising discoveries, uh, I would like uh, first uh, to talk about your objective and your research methods, because I do believe that it's important to understand your research method uh, before sharing your uh, results. So first, could you tell us what is the objective of behavioral genetics and especially what is the main purpose of your research? You talk about disentangling nature and nurture. Yes, That's a, that is a very good place to start. Um, I mentioned the title, and one of the reasons why it's not so good is because it doesn't convey the idea of individual differences. What behavioral genetics is about is asking why we differ from each other and one's, why some children have reading disability, why some people become diagnosed as schizophrenic. Those are individual differences between people. And the title, What Makes Us Who We Are, sounds like what makes us who we are as humans. And it is important from a genetic perspective to say 99% of all our DNA that we inherit, all the 3 billion base pairs of DNA in the spiral staircase of DNA, 99% are the same for all of us. That's what makes us human. But what we're talking about is the 1% of DNA sequences that make us different. Now, it could be that those one, that 1% of DNA doesn't make us different, but it turns out that it really does. And so what behavioral genetics is about is trying to understand individual differences between people in a population. And it's the, probably the most often misunderstood concept because uh, people might be surprised to learn that weight is highly heritable, body weight. Now, people aren't surprised to learn height is highly heritable. You could hardly ignore that. But with weight, you know, given our fat shaming culture and the idea that, you know, it's just get a grip and stop eating so much, you know, but actually 70% of the differences between people in European and American populations are due to inherited DNA differences. That's what, that's what uh, makes them different. It doesn't mean, though, that 70% of your weight is due to genetics and the other 30% to the environment. It's about individual differences in the population. So the methods we use to get at that are, there's three types. First is a twin study, then there's adoption studies, and now there's DNA studies. And starting with the last one, it's the easiest. If you can show that bits of inherited DNA are related to behavior, they can predict behavior, it's how do you argue with that? You know, and that's where we're at now with the DNA revolution. But uh, before we get there, though, there are meth a twin and adoption studies have been around literally for one century. 1920s were the first studies. And twin studies 
are like a biological quasi-experiment because you have, people probably know there are two types of twins, identical twins and fraternal twins. And um, uh, one third of all twins are identical and two thirds are fraternal. Half of those are same-sex fraternals. So if you compare same-sex fraternal twins to identical twins who are, because they're genetically identical, they um, always are same sex. And so if a trait, if individual differences in a trait are heritable, that is due to inherited DNA differences, you have to predict that the identical twins will be more similar than the fraternal twins for that trait. And for example, with weight, that is the case that identical twins correlate about uh, 0.7 and fraternal twins correlate about 0.35. And so that difference can be used to estimate the extent to which individual differences in weight are due to inherited DNA differences. With lots of qualifications, it's talking about, uh, the, you can't generalize beyond the samples you study. So, I mean, you know, we're not talking about the extremes of abuse and neglect, for example, or starvation, but we're talking about the normal range of genetic and environmental variation. And we're saying that inherited DNA differences account for a very substantial amount of those. So that's like a biological experiment in a way. The other type is a social experiment, adoption. What we're saying is that um, we know, we've known forever that things run in families, weight runs in families. But psychologists, behavioral scientists never had trouble with that. They always said, always assumed, well, that's due to the environment. Um, with, with weight, your parents provide the food that you eat and they give you uh, uh, models for lifestyles and that sort of thing, exercise. And that's a reasonable hypothesis. But if you have, what we want, the main message for people is to realize that you should always say, well, what about genetics? So if I tell you that p children resemble their parents in weight, I can guarantee the first thing you think of is, yeah, environmental nurture. But just ask you, what about genetics? Parents and offspring are 50% similar genetically. So couldn't it be that what we're observing is genetic resemblance? And how could you, how could you tease that apart, nature and nurture? Well, the adoption method does it very neatly. You can have genetic parents, birth parents, who relinquish their kids for adoption at birth, and you can study those children as they grow up in Away from, they haven't seen their biological parents since the first week of life. And then conversely, so that's an estimate of genetic influence. And then the, the converse of that is you can study those adopted children and their adoptive parents. Those parents give them the same family environment, but not genes. So you've got three types of parents, the genetic plus environment parents, genetic parents, and um, environmental parents. And so for weight, uh, parents and children correlate about 0.4, say. And what was what's amazing now, and I think there's like eight adoption studies, the correlation between adopted parents, I mean, biological parents and their adopted away kids is 0.4 for body weight. They, they correlate just as much, even though those kids haven't seen their biological parents from the first week of life. Con and the other side of it then, that suggests it's all genetic that correlation. The other side of it confirms that. Adoptive parents and their adopted children correlate zero for body weight. 
So can you see that that suggests that when parents and offspring share genes and environment, what's responsible for familial resemblance is genetics. So, so those, what's neat too about these two designs is they each have problems, but they have different problems, and yet they converge on the same conclusion, that in the case of weight, inherited DNA differences account for about, well, more than half, say 70% of the differences between people in the samples that we study. So those are the two methods, and that's how you come to that conclusion. And probably later we'll talk about using DNA and how we are able to tell that DNA differences also account for those differences. That is, we can find genes that are responsible for that heritable difference. But the thing is with twin and adoption studies, the point I want to make is that um, although they sound you know, complicated and mysterious, they're really trying to get at this bottom line of the influence of inherited DNA differences. And if they are inherited DNA differences with the DNA revolution, we ought to be able to find some of those genes. And that's what's been happening in the last decade. Thanks a lot. Uh, regarding methods, I have a, a, a final question before we discuss more in detail uh, the result of this uh, uh, research. Uh, there are two key concepts, variance and size effect. And could you tell us more about these two concepts? Because I think it is important to understand your results. Yes, it's, it's really... Um critical statistics you know and in the uk now they're they're talking about putting more emphasis on what they say is maths but really what it is is statistics and it's amazing in schools how little statistics kids get and you know that is so important i think much more important than advanced math for most people it's how do you interpret data and variance is central to everything we do yet it's really hard to get it across to people. It's about these individual differences that I described. So it's a statistic that describes how different people are. And people, your, your audience have probably heard of the bell-shaped curve called the normal distribution. And that's anything you study like weight or height or personality, it's distributed normally if you measure it carefully enough. That is, most people are in the middle, and as you get out farther and farther to very short people or very tall people, there are fewer and fewer of them. So you get what looks like a bell-shaped curve. And variance is a statistic that tells you how different people are in that population. So usually we think of means. That's what people can always think about. And the problem is that does not relate to what we're talking about with genetics. We're talking about this variance in the population. And the reason variance is so important, even if you study means, is what you said, effect size. So by effect size, we mean not just our two, our boys and girls say different in verbal ability. So there's hundreds of studies on this. And yeah, they differ significantly. And what's really important for people to understand is don't accept statistical significance because that's just a function of effect size. So for boys and girls, their mean difference is very small. You, can, you can't begin to detect it in the real world, but it's highly statistically significant because if you're just studying boys and girls and comparing them on verbal ability, you can have samples in the thousands. So uh, 
so the, what you want to ask about is, well, but what's the effect size? How big of the effect is it? Because if boys and girls are so similar, you can hardly tell them apart. What good is that? And that's what effect size does. It's the, it, it gets at variance. It says um, they, they, uh, the difference between boys and girls explains less than 1% of the variance. So what that's saying is that if all you know about a kid is whether they're a boy or a girl, you just don't know anything about their verbal ability. And so that's a, a really critical issue. And that's what, when people understand that, they can really understand genetics because in, in the behavioral sciences, it's rare to explain 5% of the variance. So here we're talking about less than 1% for boys and girls. But, you know, there's, there are findings that explain up to 5%, say, of the variance, that is, of the differences between people. How much of that is explained by this mean difference that we're studying? But here with genetics, we're not talking about 5% or 15% of the variance, but 50%, 5-0%. This is off the scale in the behavioral sciences. There's nothing that explains that much variance between people. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I know it's hard to, for people to get their head around, but it's absolutely critical to what we're talking about. And in general, I think people need to say, yeah, okay, statistical significance, big deal. That's sort of like a starting point. But what's the effect size? How big of an effect it is? Because if it's a tiny effect, who cares? It's maybe statistically significant, but it's not socially significant. So not only is the heritability massive for all of our personality traits, as you just said, 50%, but you also mentioned that genetics is involved when we are considering things that we used to think are just environmental effects, which in your book you call the nature of nurture. Could you explain this and give us a concrete role of an example of the role of genetics in environmental effects? Yeah. Well, this is research that I began in the 80s by... Um, including measures of the environment in these behavioral genetic studies. So what I talked about, like with weight, we're not measuring the environment. We're getting methods like twin and adoption studies that allow us to say how much of the variance in weight is due to inherited DNA differences, genetics, and then the rest. And the genetics is defined very narrowly. It's what, what's inherited, whereas the environment's defined very broadly. It's everything else. It really shouldn't be called environment. It should be called not genetic, non-genetic. So, but uh, one of the ways forward in research, once we realize genetics is so important, is to say, well, why don't we, what if we include specific measures of the environment in these studies? Can we, for example, find uh, aspects of the environment that correlate with body weight? And then, um, you know, so use a, a measure of the environment as well. And the thing is, when we did that, we realized that these measures of the environment are also showing genetic influence. And at first, it kind of seems like a mistake, right? How can the environment have, it doesn't have DNA. How, how can it have genetic influence? I mean, you know, in, in cognitive development of children, the measure of the environment that correlates most with children's say, ability, it's achievement at school, are books in the, on the shelf. And can you believe books on the shelf show genetic influence? But 
you know, because they don't have DNA, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's not um, because books don't get on the shelf by themselves. It's a matter of which parents have more books on their shelves than other parents. And that has a lot to do with education. And that's substantially heritable, uh, how much education people have. So we started realizing that most measures of the environment in psychology show genetic influence. Um, like the one that you're probably most familiar is life events. It's used in thousands of studies. And that was thought as prototypically environmental. It's what happens to you. But if you look at what goes into those tests of life events, it's things like financial troubles, getting in conflicts with people, losing your job. That isn't the environment out there happening to you. That's definitely how you interact with the environment. And that's where the genetics comes in. In fact, we've gone so far along these lines that the trick is to try and find any measure of the environment that does not show genetic influence. And there are a few. Death of your spouse, for example, thank, thank goodness, doesn't show genetic influence. But you know, to the extent people are involved in their experience, then it shows genetic influence. Not as much as behavior. It's more like 25% rather than 50%. But what was interesting about that was it gets you thinking about how genetics works, for example. And then if the environment's heritable and our behavior is heritable, how about the correlation between environment and behavior? Like uh, books in the home predict how well kids do in reading at school. And it's, we all know correlations do not imply causation, but every few days I see something in the newspaper like that where there's a correlation between what parents do and how children turn out. So books in the shelf, you could easily interpret that correlation with kids' reading ability at school as environmental. It, it, it's not crazy to do that. It makes, that's what people have always done. But then just say, what about genetics? Parents and offspring are 50% similar genetically. Could it be that parents who like to read have books in their house and they have kids who like to read because they're good at it? They find it rewarding and interesting. And that, in fact, is the case, that genetics doesn't account for all that correlation, but it does account for much of it. And that's really important because if we intervene without recognizing the genetic mediation of those correlations, you can go seriously wrong. I remember 10 years ago, the government thought, well, there's this correlation between books in the home and how well kids do at school. So they actually had what they call a white paper here, you know, where they're planning on uh, making this um, real. They said, well, we'll just have vans drive up to houses and drop off books, and then everyone will do better at school. So that was a massive example of ignoring the importance of genetics. Um, so that's uh, the idea of the nature of nurture. And again, don't assume that our environmental measures are free of genetic influence because the way genes work is to have us experience our environments differently. You know, that's the core of the idea of the nature of nurture. And so, uh, for example, vocabulary is one of the most highly heritable traits, uh, cognitive abilities. And people say, how can that be heritable? Because you have to learn vocabulary words. But that misses the point. We're not born with vocabulary words. Some kids 
tune into that channel more. I have one granddaughter who always wants to know about words. She wants to know why are you using that word rather than this word? And of course, she's going to develop the better vocabulary because it's the way genetics gives us um, a little nudge towards using the environment uh, in a way that fosters our genetic propensities. So it, it's a, it's, it sounds like a little cutesy thing, there's genetic influence on environmental measures, but it actually leads to kind of a profound idea about the uh, way in which genes work. And genetics seem to matter more and more throughout the lifespan, which was another very interesting finding. Could you explain how you discovered this? Yeah, it's not true for all traits, but when heritability changes in the lifespan, it goes up. And the most noticeable one for which we have the best data is for cognitive ability, or sometimes called intelligence. And um, the results are consistent in that heritability in infancy is about 20%, in childhood and adolescence about 40%, and in adulthood about 60%. And some studies suggest later it's more like 80% if you control for dementia. And that is, you know, as I said, very few findings in psychology uh, account for 5% of the variance. But here we're talking about going from 20% to 40% to 60% and then perhaps to 80%. And so that that's so well uh, documented now. I don't think there can be any doubt about it. The issue is why does it go up? And I, nobody knows, but most people think that it has to do with what I was just talking about. That is, um, we call it gene environment correlation. The genetics is like these initial nudges that push us in certain directions. They nudge us in certain directions. They don't even push us. So other things being equal, we tend to go in that direction more and more. If you like to read, you read more and more. And there's lots that follows from that. If you have trouble reading, like my sister did, you know, you're not going to go into an academic sort of life. So I think um, that's what it's about. My my parents were in a, um, uh, it, they, they died a couple years ago in their 97, and they were in an old people's home. And it, it, you really see it there that, um, you know, some people are really intellectually alive, they don't lobotomize themselves on stupid TV programs. They're, they're engaged with life. And I think that's like the end result of this snowballing process in which genetic, little genetic differences get bigger and bigger as you, as you go through life. You know, B.F. Skinner, you probably know about the famous uh, learning psychologist. When he, uh, you know, he was an adamant, uh, learning theory. He was an environmentalist in the sense of thinking we are what we learn, you know, that that's responsible for differences between people. But his one of his last books was about old age. And in that book, he said, the older I get, the more I become who I am. And you sort of see that, don't you? As you get older, you just say, ah, that's the way I am. You know, uh, if I'm not, I'm not very sociable, I don't like going to cocktail parties. And I don't have to <laughs> anymore. And I think that's what it's about, really. We, we um, create environments that are correlated with our genetic propensities. Mm, yeah, really uh, very interesting. Robert, I, I think some uh, findings, and we have started to talk about, 
from your research are very counterintuitive, especially uh, about the role of the family environment and the one of education and school on uh, children. So I would like to come back uh, on this. Could you first explain why you consider the family environment doesn't have much impact on children? Right. Well, the um, it's empirical. It's, it's not a, a matter. I mean, I was surprised by the findings, too. But it uh, comes from research, as I described, with weight. You know, so we know things run in families like weight. And twin and adoption studies, though, can separate nature and nurture. And we're just so convinced from Freud onwards that the family environment must be tremendously important in terms of children's outcomes. But if it were for weight, how do you explain the fact that Kids are just as similar to their birth parents who they never see after the first week of life for weight. And conversely, with their adoptive parents, they show no correlation with their adoptive parents. So heritability is only about 50%. The environment's about the rest of it, 50%. But it's not due to this nurture, this shared family environmental influence. And so... You can show that, too, as you um, talk about schools, environments. Um, you know, um, people find it hard to believe, especially in the States. I guess it's that way in France, too, where people spend a lot of money to send their kids to the best schools. But if you just say, empirically, what's the data that the quality of schools relates to how well the kids do? Um, I can do this in the States because we have these very good ratings of schools by these independent bodies that actually visit the schools for several days and they get very good ratings at the schools. And on the basis of that, there are these so-called league tables, which say these schools are better than these schools. And, on, um, and then we have, uh, um, we call them DCSE exams at age 16 at the end of compulsory schooling everybody takes these national exams. So how much do those ratings of school quality relate to, correlate with how well kids do at school? And people really didn't look at that. They looked at differences between schools and they say these schools differ. The, the so-called better schools have kids who get a better average grade. But then you gotta say, what about effect size? And the effect size isn't very great. And in con conversely, if you just say what, um, it turns out that you're explaining less than 4% of the variance in these GCSE scores with school quality ratings, which is a big deal because um, people are spending hundreds of thousands of pounds to send their kids to the right preschool so they get into the right school, so they get into the best prep schools, and then they get into Oxbridge, you know? And I, I think it's fine to do that. There's lots of reasons to do it. But if you're doing it because you want your kid to do better at achievement, it's not going to work very well. It doesn't make much difference, just empirically. And in contrast now, compare that 4%, and it's actually 1% if you control for socioeconomic status, because kids aren't randomly assigned to schools. But anyway, 4% or 1%, compare that to 50%. 50% of the differences, actually for these GCSE scores, it's 60% of the difference between schools and kids in performance is due to these genetic differences. So 
it, it's a good example of how genetics is just sort of mind boggling in its implications compared to our easy acceptance of any environmental explanation. And this is good for parents. You know, if you parents struggling to come up with hundreds of thousands of pounds to send their kids to the best school, I think it's fine for them to know it's not going to make much difference. Now, in terms of school achievement, now you could say in the UK especially, you get much better resources, better sports, better arts and drama and lots of things. The resources are better. It's probably a nicer place to be, maybe, but there's lots of stories about these pub boarding schools and how they can be pretty awful too. So I think it's just good for parents to know that, that it doesn't make much of a difference. And I think that's true in general. My message to parents basically is to relax. You don't, you don't have as much control as you think you have. And I think that's good. You know, as you see a lot of these, you know, yuppie parents who, you know, wait prolonged childbirth until later in life. And then there's so much helicopter parents concerned that one false move and their kid's going to be screwed up for life. And it's just not the case. And then conversely, you get these parents who they really think their kid's a blob of clay that they can mold to be whatever they want them to be. And that's a recipe for disaster. You know, it's so much better to say, I'm gonna enjoy my relationship with my kid. I love them, I'm gonna help them do things that they want to do. I'm not gonna make them into something I want them to be. And I really think a lot of the enjoyment of being a parent is watching your child become who they are genetically and helping them to do that. It's, you know, it's what you do with someone you love. You know, you don't try to make them into something you want them to be. So um, I'm sorry to go off on that long uh, ramble, but. No, 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 that, that's perfect. Uh, my question was about uh, what would be your advice to uh, parents to help your children? But you have uh, quite already uh, uh, answered. So, uh, so thanks a lot for this very uh, insightful. Um, from your perspective regarding schools, because I think it is a, a, a very important topic after a, a family and so on, what would be your advice to create a better system, education system uh, to help children? Well, I wrote a book with a former student of mine called G is for Genes, and it's sort of the implication of genetics for education. That was 2013 or something like that. And in there, in there, we talk about it. It's, it's sort of, you know, even though I put my head above the parapet now, I still try to stay away from policy because the more important point, I think, is that there are no necessary policy implications that follow from finding genetic influence. So the basic idea, say learning ability is substantially heritable. Some people assume, well, that, that's like a right-wing agenda. You know, you're gonna just with the, teach the best, forget the rest. But I think if you, a moment's thought is, says that, well, that's not too clever because it's not the few inventors who are important for society. You need intellectual capital throughout the society in order to incorporate things like that. So even from that right-wing perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense, it seems to me. But there's also the left-wing perspective called the Finnish model, where you do what it takes 
to get everybody up to minimal levels of literacy and numeracy. And, and so policy, you know much more about this than I do, but I think policy involves, it's, it's not just data driven, it involves values. And you know you apply your values to it. And I get cynical as I get older dealing with government that they'll use your your data if it fits what they wanted to say anyway. But you know it's not really data driven in any real sense of the word. But the point here is that there's no necessary policy implication that follows from finding genetic influence in development. So I I tend to stay away from uh, giving. Uh, sort of policy advice, but I, I would just say for parents, um, schools have to be good enough. And I think our inspection system in the UK, which has been going for 20 years, it got rid of the worst schools. And so most of the schools are good enough, but you want your kid to be in a school where it's nice, kids aren't beating them up and, you know, that sort of thing. And, but that's because it doesn't make much difference in their achievement, but it makes a difference in a large part of their life when they're in school. You want it to be nice, but it's again, it's just the thing about wanting life to be good for people you love, but you're not doing it because you're trying to make them into anything you want them to be. I know I evaded your question, Eric, but really I, 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 I think it's important for scientists to realize they're not, they're not policy people, you know, and I'm not. And um, there's so much to say about the data and, and I think that's better than uh, letting, implying to people you have an ax to grind, do you know? I really don't. So we're gonna pivot a little bit, Robert, because of course we are behavioral science practitioners. So we're used to saying that context is key to explain people's behaviors, and there's tons of research that does show that we can change people's behaviors using specific approaches like framing, default options, social norms, and so on. So how can you reconcile the results from your research saying the environment doesn't really matter versus the results from behavioral science and practitioners' experiments that show that it does? Is it a question of short-term versus long-term, differences between what you called what is and what could be? How would you reconcile these things? Yeah, well, that's a terrific question. And the answer is basically what you just said, what is versus what could be. We're, um, there, there are many... Um, prefatory remarks I wasn't able to make. I emphasize the one about we're studying individual differences. But another one is the one you just mentioned. It's we're studying what is. We're studying the things that make a difference in the population at that time with that mix of genetic and environmental influences. So new influences could make a difference. So what is doesn't tell you necessarily about what could be but you'd think you'd be able to make better decisions about what could be knowing what is. So with weight, for example, there are all, all these examples of, um, you know, I, I have my highest genetic score, DNA score is for obesity. And I've had a lifelong battle with weight. And I've tried all the diets and all the different regimes. And, you know, you skinny people can understand what it's like to, um, uh, you know, just in, in psychology, we call it uh, satiety and food responsiveness. I can't go into a bakery. When, I, I can't, when I'm in Paris, I got to stay away from the bakeries. 
you're not. <laughs> you don't know what fat is. <laughs> but it's it's easy to put on weight and it's hard to lose weight. And there's satiety. I notice that so often I'm out to dinner with people. I say, no, I'm full. I don't want any more. But then there's food left on the table. And I just, just keep eating it. And, you know, skinny people think, well, you just got a character flaw. You know, just get a grip and pull your socks up, as they say in England. But, um, you know, I've been trying that for 20 years, and it really is difficult. And, um, you know, so uh, is that to say you cannot change my weight? You certainly could. If you lock me in a room without food, I'm going to lose weight. Now, that's a silly example. But there are, you know, many other behavior change approaches to weight, and they really don't work very well. Now, they could work, and there are some that work better, but, you know, they don't work very well. And we're often willing to say, oh, that has an effect. Well, again, significant effect. How big is the effect size, for example? And where I think genetics will come in is that I think different sorts of nudges, different sorts of behavior change approaches will work better for some people on their genetics, based on their genetics, than on other, than on other people. So I don't think these are necessarily in conflict. They could work together. And I think the nudge idea incorporating genetics, which counts for 50% of the variance, it, it must be a good thing to do. And it's not futuristic because 27 million people have paid to have their DNA testing done. And the UK is now um, piloting an 80 million pound program to get DNA on everybody, at least everybody who goes into the NHS. Finland and Estonia are already doing that. So it won't be too long before everyone has their DNA on a, on a little memory stick. You know, it's really um, not that much data. And then you could create these scores, we call them polygenic scores, that can predict behavior, like they can predict weight. And I don't know if you've been following, I, I'm stuck on weight now because it's a particular problem for me, but um, have you been following the uh, recent to-do about uh, semaglutide, you know, this Glucan. I've been doing that and it's worked amazingly for me. And I've been talking to the company who markets it that I, I believe it will work best for people like me who are genetic fatties. You know, I've tried everything to lose weight and it's just so hard. You know, I, um, I gain a little a few pounds every year, but they just don't go away. You know, when you get as old as me, that's a lot of pounds that you put on. Whereas, um, the semiglutide has made a big difference. Now, that's not a behavior change, but that's certainly an environmental change. And it can make a difference. It, it doesn't contribute to individual differences in the population. We don't differ, importantly, in the glucagon that, um, it, it, that semiglutide works on. So it works sort of for people in general, but I'm trying to work with the company to say, my prediction is it'll work best with people like me who are genetic fatties. And so, so the, uh, what is versus what could be? And behavior change is talking about what could be, and it's not limited by what is, for example. But you wouldn't want to talk about what could be for something that already varies a lot and isn't making a difference. So a lot of the behavior change nudge ideas are not things that are out there in the world making a difference. And I think that's what you want. So it's a really important, profound question, the relationship between what is and what could be. But they're not um, antithetical. 
So one of my last questions is around, of course, ethics and the ethics of genetics, freedom of choice, what all of this means. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Does do genetics create unequal chances? <laughs> I'd rather you I'd rather you do it, but <laughs> but uh, um, I, I would especially with the DNA revolution, you know, there's a lot of uh, concern about this, but um, my feeling is it's unethical not to do this. It gives people choice, for example, and in medicine, it's a no-brainer. You can predict who's going to get heart attacks. And we know that the interventions that work the best work early, and DNA is the best early warning system around. You can predict and then you have a chance to prevent heart attacks. And with heart attacks, we have a pretty good idea about that. That's got to be better than waiting till people, our current system, you wait till they have a heart attack, and then you try to fix them. And we're not good at that, really. It'd be obesity as well. You know, you can, you can do the uh, uh, tummy, uh, what do you call it, when you staple the stomach, you know, that sort of thing. You can go to heroic measures like that, and you can make a difference but that's not very viable in the population. And alcoholism, same thing. It's really hard to cure things once they happen. Schizophrenia too. So the, all of medicine is oriented towards prevention rather than waiting until someone has a disorder and then trying to fix it. And to prevent, you have to predict. And DNA can predict from early in life. So that's the way the behavioral sciences are gonna go too. And I have no doubt about it. Like with reading disability, it's one of my interests. If you could predict which kids are going to be reading disabled, isn't that better than waiting till they get to school and then they fail? And it's like Humpty Dumpty. There's a lot of collateral damage that happens that you can't really fix very well. So with reading, there are interventions, language interventions that work early, three and four years of age before kids can read. And the, but the good interventions, unlike the gimmicks that are out there, like growth mindset and things like that, quick and cheap methods that just don't work. The good interventions are early and they're intensive and expensive. But if you can then identify which kids are most likely to profit from that and, and you know, intervene with language in preschool years and then ameliorate reading problems when they get to school. It's just got to be a good thing to do, cost-effective and just good for everybody. And with that, you're not going to do any harm. You're not going to harm a kid by giving them uh, help with language earlier on. So I keep an eye on medicine because that's the lead in all of this work. And I think the behavioral sciences will follow, and especially when everybody has their DNA chip. Wow. So to wrap us up, Robert, what do you see as the future of behavioral genetics and what is your hope for it? Uh, well, um, a lot of my hopes have been realized with the book, you know, that people, I wrote the book because I, I wanted people to have the DNA literacy needed to discuss these issues that aren't just going to happen sometime in the future. They're happening now. And so I, I'm very pleased by that. But um, very specifically, what I want to be able to do is to um, find more of the DNA that accounts for behavior. So with, with um, weight, it's 70% heritable, 
but right now we can only predict about say 20% of the variance in weight with DNA. And, but it's only been going on for about 10 years, this research. So um, with a longer view, you could say, well, that's pretty good going. But um, the real issue is how we're going to get to the 70%. That's all we can ever predict. We can't predict 100% of weight because it's only 70% heritable. But the big thing coming down the line is whole genome sequencing. Right now, we're using these SNP chips where we only... <laughs> it's all relative, but it only as, um, measure about 700,000 bits of DNA instead of all 3 billion base pairs of DNA. That's called whole genome sequencing. And that's now getting cheaper and cheaper. And so um, soon, even now with some large studies, we're able to do that. So that's going to be a step up in terms of predictive power. But you know, I think people listening to this, whether we predict 40% or 20%, it's still a lot. And it's the best early warning system we have for some disorders. So uh, I, I'm not going to, it's too exciting now to leave the field. And um, so I'm not planning to retire anytime soon. I always say they're going to have to take me out feet first. <laughs> Love it. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work? Yep, I'm not hidden at all. I'm just Robert Plowman and Google it and you get my web page and all of that. Easy. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I know Eric and I were really looking forward to this. So um, it's great to chat with you. It's really terrific talking with both of you. Thank you so much. Be good a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.